Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are honored to have a distinguished guest, the Honorable Chacham, Rabbi Dr. Eliabadi. His list of accomplishments are very extensive, so forgive me if I'm going to have to shorten it because I could probably go on for 10 minutes. Um, the rabbi is currently in a historic role as Senior Rabbi of the Jewish Council of the United Arab Emirates. He's an officer of the Rabbinical Council of America, RCA, and Treasurer, Vice President of New York Board of Rabbis, and as Co-President of Justice for Jews from Arab countries. He was instrumental in passing a congressional resolution on behalf of Jews from Arab countries to be recognized by the U.S. government in their negotiations regarding the issue of Middle East refugees. He has lectured on Jewish themes, philosophy, law, and medical ethics around the world, and enjoys close ties with many government officials in Israel. As a member of the board of the American Sephardi Federation and World Sephardic Educational Center, he lectures on Sephardic Judaism, history, and comparative traditional law. Featured in many notable publications around the world as a Talmudic scholar, he has been interviewed on several notable news programs, including Fox News, CNN, ABC News, Spanish, Spanish Radio, CCTV, and Telemundo, as well as plenty of Israeli news channels and Arabic news channels, such as Al-Arabiya. In addition to countless awards received throughout his career, Rabbi Dr. Abadi was especially honored to receive the highest civil decoration by His Majesty King Juan Carlos I of Spain. He is honored to be following in the footsteps of the greatest Jewish scholar and philosopher, Moses Maimonides, who was also both a rabbi and a physician. Rabbi Dr. Abadi is fluent in English, Spanish, Hebrew, Arabic, and French. He maintains a private practice in gastroenterology. He's married to Elise Eichler for over 37 years, and they have six children and many grandchildren. God bless them and God bless the rabbi, and we really thank him for joining us. We know how difficult it is for him to make time for a little podcast like ours, but it just goes to show what a great man he is, and he really cares for uh, the spread of Torah and Emet in the world. So thank you. Without further ado, Rabbi Abadi. I'm so honored and privileged to have Kvot HaRav Eli Abadi on the show. As senior rabbi of the Emirates, your role in building bridges between Jews and the Arab world is not only historic, but it almost seems miraculous. Can you talk about the significance of the Abraham Accords, the past and present relationship between Judaism and Islam, and your hopes and dreams for the future? Thank you. Thank you, Ben, very much. It's a pleasure and honor for me to be here with you uh, in this podcast. And um, I hope I could contribute whatever I can to, uh, to this. So uh, let's start with your first question. Uh, as you know, the relationship between Islam and, and, and Judaism really dates back from the advent of Islam and even before. Um, for those people who are very knowledgeable uh, in Judaism and in Islam, we will recognize that there are so many uh, precepts that are very, very similar. Some of them are exactly identical. Some others are, are, are similar with some, with some, with some changes. Um, first and foremost, we, the, the belief in one God, in one unique God, uh, it's exactly the same between Judaism and, and, and Islam. We both believe in a monotheistic God and a God that is untouchable, a God that is uh, cannot be seen, you know, omniscient, omnipotent, and transcendental. So that is, that is a, a core of the belief of Islam, and it's the core of the belief in, in Judaism, as you know. So that uh, in history has uh, made Judaism and Islam, uh, in a sense, be good neighbors, uh, and there was a time in history, as you know, uh, that uh, sages uh, of, of uh, the Jewish uh, people and sages of, uh, of the Muslims uh, exchanged ideas uh, uh, in a very uh, uh, open, open way, and um, they agreed and they disagreed in certain things. And so it was a very open channel of communications between them, discussing the philosophical basis of their religion, their their precepts, and and their and their laws. Uh, interesting to know that uh, they called halacha sharia. Uh, you know, halacha comes from the word lalechet to go, right? To go. Sharia comes from the word sharia. Sharia in Arabic means 
a street, a road, a path. Right. And so it's basically the same. That's what they're trying to say. The path that we go, the halakha that we go, it's the same thing. In fact, uh, Rabbi Sa'ad Yaga'on, in his translation of the Torah, on his translation of the Ten Commandments, and in his tafsir, which is the, the Arabic translation and interpretation of the Torah and of the Tanakh, actually, he uses the word sharia for the word halakha. Uh, and, and in fact, he used the word Sharia sometimes for the word of the Torah. And so um, that is very, very similar. Uh, I mean, I could sit here for, for days doing a comparative study between or comparative lecture between uh, Islamic law uh, and, and, and Jewish law. And you'll see that there are a lot, a lot of um, misvot uh, principles, uh, philosophic principles that are very, very similar, if not identical between the two religions. Of course, uh, we have had uh, also times in history in which, uh, in which uh, the radicals amongst uh, the, the Muslims uh, forced, uh, you know, conversion of Jews and of non-Jews, uh, basically uh, under penalty of, of death if they don't convert to Judaism. So those times, unfortunately, we have had them in history, as we have had uh, good times also. So uh, having now lived in, in the country for over nine months in the United Arab Emirates, uh, really right after the um, uh, signing of the Abraham Accords, uh, I feel uh, that, uh, you know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu put me in, in such a moment and such a place that I consider to be a very historic moment. It's a moment in which I believe and I hope that we are going to rejuvenate, re uh, create uh, those good days, those good centuries in which uh, Jews and Arabs or uh, Jews and Muslims um, were able to communicate openly, uh, they exchanged ideas, uh, they worked together, they respected each other. And so I believe and I hope that indeed we are starting uh, the spirit of time. And so it's a historic moment. Uh, it's a moment that uh, has already started to change that whole region approach to Jews and to Israel as a nation. Um, if I could just compare the, the accords um, with the other peace treaties that Israel has with Egypt and Jordan, uh, really the difference as the, you know, the proverbial say between heaven and earth. Yeah. Um, in, in less than one year, in fact, we are celebrating the accords, uh, not signing the accords announcement a year this, this weekend is actually a year uh, from, from that time, and then the signing will be in September. But the amount of change that occurred in society, in the Emirates and in Bahrain, and of course in Israel, is uh, something amazing to see. The business accords, the academic accords, the, the, the MOU signs between so many companies, uh, uh, even social or NGOs and, and organizations have, have uh, met each other, have exchanged uh, ideas. We have had so many um, conventions in, in Dubai from scientific, from security, from medical to, to business, to, to academic that took place within less than a year. Wow. Uh, and the amount of tourism, uh, Israeli tourists coming to the Dubai, to the UAE, over 120,000 over this period, if not more. And of course, Emiratis and Bahrainis have gone to Israel also to visit. They have had so many exchanges of, of, of again, of ideas and lectures and, and, and science and everything. So th that has not occurred in, 40 years of peace with, with Egypt yeah. and in, uh, of uh, now almost 30 years, 27 years with the peace with, with Jordan. So what suddenly clicked? Like, why did they just decide now is the time? Well, uh, first, uh, as, as uh, the foreign minister of the UAE said at the beginning, this is not a peace treaty. We are not calling it a peace treaty because we were never at war with Israel. He says this is called a normalization uh, process, normalization accord, because we are normalizing. It is normal to have relations with a neighboring country. And Israel being at the neighboring country is in the region. It's normal to have relations with them. Now, do I agree with everything that, that Israel does? He said no. But do we agree with everything any other country does? Also not. So, But we still have relations with them. So, so there is no difference here. Uh, 
And he said, wherever we disagree, we let them know that we disagree as we let other countries know. So why should there be any difference between that and, and, and any other country? So that, I think that is the that is the essence, I think, of the relationship that is not seen as a peace treaty because they were never at war. We were not ever at war. We agree and we disagree on certain things, but we could have relations so it would benefit all the countries. Now, why, uh, why is it that now and not before? Look, there is no country in the world that does things against their interest, maybe except Israel. <laughs> Sometimes it does things against their own self-interest. But every country in the world, what they do, they do for the interest of the country. And But that's normal and that's expected. You don't expect any country as any individual to do things against their own interest. So it is in the interest of the UAE, of course, but it's in the interest of Israel to sign it also, of course. So, so, so first and foremost, we have to start from that, from that point of reference. It is in the interest of both countries to have this normalization accord, to have diplomatic relations and all other relations that between countries they have. Number two, what are those interests? They have similar interests. They both are in, into uh, science, technology, cyber. Um, the UAE may need, uh, may need some uh, know-how in agriculture, which, which, which Israel has, uh, and vice versa. Both countries need each other because they both can help each other tremendously. And so those are the common interests that Israel and, and the UAE, and I would say the entire Gulf region has. Uh, then are they issues of security in the region that, that they both have interest? Of course, they have issues of security that they have to thwart. Do they have some common enemies? I would say yes. And yeah. so those things have united them, yes. But those are just one of the many things that I see both countries, um, uh, or even Israel and the Gulf region, including Bahrain in this case, they have a lot in common. And so why, when all those countries living in the same region, facing the same challenges, that they can help each other, why shouldn't they hold hands, so to speak, and help each other? And I think that's what the Abraham Accords. Now, I, uh, I knew that they were coming for several years. Uh, the relations between Israel and the UAE um, has been happening for over 10 to 15 years. Uh, they have had uh, cultural exchanges, scientific exchanges, strategic exchanges, all were in a under the table, so to speak, uh, uh, fashion, uh, not to uh, uh, rock the boat, if I could use that, that problem in that region. But I think with the encouragement of the Trump administration, uh, incentives and the realization that what are we doing? You know, we both have similar interests. We both wanna live in peace and tranquility. We both wanna help each other. Why don't we just do it and, and, and be, you know, be uh, be uh, out there and say yes. We we want to we want to join each other. We want to have diplomatic relations. We have we want to sign that quotes, and that's that's what happened. And I believe that several other countries in the region will do the same thing. Well, we saw after the UAE, we had Bahrain, then we had Sudan, then we had Morocco, and I believe few others will will be coming, and it's right time. Right. right. Well. It's really exciting and it's beautiful. I'm, I'm so happy that it's happening. It feels like a utopian dream coming to fruition. So um, moving, shifting gears to another question, uh, since you have an expertise in history, um, I wanted to talk about um, the, the tradition of Old Sfarad. Um, there's well-known Chachamim, as you know, of Old Sfarad, which are Harambam, Ibn Ezra, the Rif, Yehuda Halevi, among others. Um, who are some of the other Sephardic Chachamim who get less fanfare, but deserve a lot more attention in your opinion and why? Well, you know, you have Don Ishaq Abarbanel, uh, who has his own perush on, on the Torah, but uh, he is also known as a diplomat, as a politician. Uh, he doesn't get, I think, enough uh, recognition uh, in his uh, erudition first of Torah and also of, uh, of, of Avodah, of Melacha in, in that sense. Uh, I, I think uh, before we start anything about Sephardic Judaism or Sephardic Hachamim, we ought to speak of Hasdai Ibn Shaprut, who is believed to be kind of the first one to open up that door uh, to uh, Jewish communities in, in Spain and to establish a, a, a yeshivot, you know, a centers of learning 
of Hachamim in training, but yet at the same time was involved in the daily life of, of Spain. Under Abdul Rahman, you know, the Caliph Abdul Rahman, he started being his, uh, his advisor, then his physician, then his uh, Ministry of Finance, then he became his foreign minister and a minister of war, and then to his son also later on. And so Hazdai ibn Shiprut, I think he's not given much, uh, much recognition, at least among the masses. Yeah, and in academic circles, Yes, of course, he's known, uh, but amongst the masses, many people don't know who he is. Uh, he is the one who really communicated with the, with the kingdom of Khazar. Uh, he is the one who, uh, who, who, you know, through him, we understand that that story is not a, is not a legend. It's a true history. He communicated. There are letters between him and King Joseph of Khazar uh, that exchanging letters back and forth as to their Judaism, which tribe they were. It's amazing because Hasdai ibn Shibur in his first letter of introduction, he thought that the Khazars were Malchay Yehuda, the descendant of the tribe of Judah, because he believed that there cannot be no other king but from, from the tribe of Judah. And then when uh, King Joseph answered him, no, we are not of any tribe, we, we were converted. We were converted and for now uh, over a hundred and something years, on 50 years at that time. So, so uh, Hasdai ibn Shiprut was a great personality that we ought to start the study of, of Sephardic studies or Sephardic hachamim or the Sephardic uh, way of life, so to speak, through Hasdai ibn Shiprut. He's the first one. That, um, that opened up that door and those centuries of uh, known as the golden centuries. Of course, we have also Shilomo Ibn Gabirol, a uh, very famous poet. Uh, he gets something, but maybe not like, not like the rest. Uh, we have Rabbi Shilomo Ibn Ezra, the father of Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra. I'll tell you, in um, one of my trips that I uh, took to Spain, I led a, a group of... Uh, uh, over 52 people, Sephardim and Ashkenazim, to study, well, not to, to show them basically the Sephardic heritage. And we visited the, so many cities in Spain, from Seville to Granada to Segovia to Cordova to Toledo to to you know uh, everywhere, everywhere that there was a uh, a Sephardic presence and Sephardic hacham. We uh, when we would we would we arrive at the city. I would read the name of the hachamim that lived there and some of their of their uh, contribution. Uh, in Cordoba, I went to a library. Now, uh, in many of these major cities, the Spanish government established institution called Casa Sefarad, the House of Sefarad, because they want to kind of renew that uh, that heritage. They want the people to know about them, and I'm sure they also wanted some tourism to come and, right. and okay. visit. Uh, and so I entered into one of those Casa Sefarad and I went to the library to see what kind of books they have. And I found a book that is uh, very, very interesting. Uh, and that book uh, is called uh, uh, Rabinos Escritores. Now, Rabinos Escritores, meaning rabbis and, and scholars, rabbis and scholars. It was an encyclopedia written by, and, and uh, by the way, it is being sold uh, by, for a reprint by Amazon, believe it or not. Now, when I was there, I had no idea about that, but, but recently I searched to see, and I saw that they are. It's called Rabinos y Escritores. It's a two volume encyclopedia. I saw the original books uh, written by uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Ramirez Hernandez, a converso in 1721. And it is all about rabbis and scholars, which means rabbis that were scholars in secular studies. So any rabbi that published in Judaism and also published in, uh, in secular uh, uh, studies, whatever their profession is, either medicine or cartography or, or finance or minister, whatever that profession they had in addition of being hachamim, they were included in that encyclopedia. Wow. And Harambam, with all his greatness, and maybe he is the leader of all, but there were almost a thousand like him in that, uh, in that encyclopedia, starting from Hasdai ibn Shaprut all the way to Itzhak Abarbanel and slightly after that. It was a 600 year 
compilation of hachamim that again published in whatever the area of expertise in Judaism it's either parshanut uh, halakha uh, philosophy talmud uh, poetry literature whatever it was and also they published in their secular endeavor that they had so uh, i uh, approximated and, and each one had his biography his name of course is biography and also discussion some of their works that they published. And, and that's how, so I estimated almost a thousand of those um, in, the, in that encyclopedia of, of two volumes. Now we're talking about a thousand people in a period of 600 years. So that's, we're talking about 1.4 sage per year, right? Wow. You have 600 years, a thousand people, you have like 1.4 sage per year. Now you might think, oh, that's nothing, one point. But that's, there hasn't been a period in history as equal as that, where you have hachamim, that's why they are really hachamim sages, yet published, published in their Jewish area, and yet at the same time published in the secular endeavor that they had. There is no equal in history, not equal at all. And we're talking about hachamim, we're not talking about just regular Jews. So um, once I was speaking about that and somebody said, hey, but Rabbi, you know, the United States, we have great Jewish scholars and academicians and scientists and politicians. I said, yeah, you're right. I said, but I want you to start counting with your fingers. How many of those, uh, they know that they are Jewish or they admit that they are Jewish? Second question, how many of those, even that they know that they are Jewish, they practice Judaism. Right. Next, how many of those are published also in Judaism? Next, how many of those are even rabbis? I said, if you calculate, if the hundreds or thousands of those Jewish scientists, politicians, uh, businessmen, whatever it is, you probably come down to less than two hands, right. less than 10 people that are published in that they're rabbis published in, 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 in Torah and whatever other profession they have, and they're published in that. And you know, less than 10 in a period of 400 years since, uh, since the United States existence, you know, even as a, as a, even as a New Amsterdam, even as, as before, before, um, before the independence. Now, what do you attribute that to? Because obviously that's not happening again. It's not happening anymore. What changed? Why is that? not occurring again? Well, I, again, uh, unfortunately, because uh, the most of the Jews that, that are scientists or academician in the United States followed basically the European model of the Jewish community. And let me explain that for a second. In Spain, you could be a rabbi, you could be a Jew, a fully knowledgeable Jew, learned, observant Jew, and yet at the same time, you could be any other profession that you wanted. That was not frowned upon. That was in fact encouraged. That was something, it's, you don't have to leave Judaism to become a physician. You don't have to, in fact, to, as a Jew, being a physician is fulfillment also of Jewish, of Jewish norms of, of, uh, of helping the other, right? Of, of the Hovat Lerapod, if you have the ability, then you should to heal. And any other profession, it was not frowned upon, it was not you know, spoken under the table, it was not anybody who became any other profession in addition to their Torah learning, it was not ostracized, it was not excommunicated, it was not looked down upon, it was encouraged. In fact, the, the, the more active in society that you were, that at the same time you were hadir atshamayim, you had uh, raw, uh, uh, awe and reverence of, of heaven, and you keep the Torah and you learn Torah and you study it and you teach it, the more respected you were. That was something encouraged. In contradistinction, the Jews in Europe, our Ashkenazi brothers, unfortunately, they lived under a, a terrible uh, fear all the time. And so they isolated themselves into shtetls, into small little towns, or they were forcedly isolated, ghettoized, so to speak, by, by, by the Christian uh, uh, monarchs at that time. And for a Jew to learn 
a profession outside of Torah, it was first frowned upon by the Jewish community, and two, they were not allowed to do it by the non-Jewish community. And so for a Jew to become a physician or to become whatever other profession they wanted, they had kind of to leave the community to be able to do so. Uh, and so when that Jew left the community, the community itself, first of all, rejected them. They excommunicated them because they left the community to study other than Torah. And the, the, the powers to be, the Christian monarchs around them, the Christian society around them also isolated them because they were Jewish and they could not study unless they shed their Judaism. And so that's why you have the period of the enlightenment, the Haskalah, many frowned up, uh, upon them because many of those Jews that left the community, they had to shed their Judaism. What happened was when they wanted to come back because either they missed Judaism or they missed their family or they missed their people, when they wanted to come, and, some, and many of them wanted to come back, they were the doors were shut for them from the community. So the community rejected them also. And so those people, unfortunately, were left to get lost among them. And many of them assimilated, got lost. And in fact, that's how, that's how reform Judaism began. When they were not accepted in the domain community and they wanted to do something Jewish, they wanted to feel Jewish, but they also wanted to feel not the Judaism that they had in this small shtetl, small little town. They wanted to have a Judaism that is acceptable amongst the other people. Those problems, those societal problems did not exist in Spain. And that's why uh, you, have, you had in Spain hachamim, sages, that they were published in, in Judaism, but yet at the same time they had a, a secular uh, endeavor, secular profession, and they published in it. And as I said, it was, it was a sense of honor to have that and not, uh, not a sense of shame that it was in Europe. Now, um, the Jews in the United States, the early Jews that were Sephardim, they maintained that, that, that path of Sephardic uh, understanding. You have uh, Hacham Sabato Morey, Rabbi Sab Dr. Sabato Morey, who, right, who was a rabbi and a doctor also. You have several of those early Sephardim uh, who, uh, who maintained those duality of, of profession, being a hacham, published and also, and also a, a secular endeavor. Where the Ashkenazi Jews, when they came, they carried with them that lifestyle of Europe where you are either a Jew uh, and dedicated to Torah study, or if you want to dedicate yourself to a secular study, you are shunned by the community and you're outside. And that's why most of the scientists that we have today, Jews, academics, scientists, politicians, they barely know that they are Jewish or they hide it or they're not proud of it or they don't know anything about Judaism. It is only in the last 100 years with the establishment of Yeshiva University as an institution that, uh, that uh, says, no, it is okay to be a doctor and a religious Jew. It's okay to be a lawyer and a religious Jew. And that's basically the Sephardic model of, of uh, of Judaism, that you're starting to have some of those uh, hachamim that at the same time have a secular, excel in secular studies and, and secular profession. Yeah, and actually um, my Ashkenazi friends, they don't understand that we don't come from a world of sectarianism. Like in my community, we're, we pray together based on our, our, not on our hashkafa, which most other you know communities do, we're united based on our heritage. So I, in the row that I sit in in shul, I have you know a guy who's black hat and a guy who drives to synagogue. And we're, you know, we, we're praying together and we're friends and it's normal. And in, in their world, that doesn't really exist. So, you know, we don't have reform uh, Sephardic communities. So I think it's an important distinction to make. And uh, hopefully, you know, the Sephardic tradition will carry on and influence the Ashkenazi community a little bit more, um, which hasn't really happened in the last few hundred years. But right. uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, sorry, it's true. And, and that's why they have divided into uh, denominations because they have shunned each other. Uh, if, you, if you're not exactly, uh, you observe Judaism the way they are, then you, have, you are shunned, you, are, you, are, you don't belong to us. And therefore they have not allowed these Jews 
that went out of the community and they wanted to come back to the community to live as Jews, they were shunned, they were excommunicated, that they forced them in a sense to create reform Judaism. You know, this is, of course, it's a very simple explanation, but these right. are the, the, the essence and, and the, the, the principal issues that really developed into these denominations. Sure, and this actually leads into my next question. Um, what was the derech halimud or the, the way of the methodology of learning of old Sfarad? And what are the major differences between the halachic approach of, uh, you know, of let's just say Talmud and halacha um, between the Sfaradim and the Ashkenazim? Right. So there are two uh, main principles that, that Sephardi Hachamim espoused. And of course, those two uh, divide into many others. But the main, uh, the two main ones are one is that the study conducted by the Hachamim of the Talmud was the purpose of studying the Talmud is to derive the Halacha. That's number one. Number two is Kohad Hetera Adif that the power of, of allowing something, of being a lenient view is preferable than the power of, of making things strict. Um, and these are the two major principles that Hachmeh Sefarad espoused and, uh, and many of them continue until our days to do so. Uh, and why is that? Why, uh, why was Alibadehil Khata the, the learning of the Talmud? Because the Talmud are really legal proceedings. Um, uh, and Harambam, in fact, in his introduction to Mishneh Torah, basically says, with this Mishneh Torah, you're no longer going to need to study the Talmud. You have everything here. You have everything here. So uh, now, should a person not study Talmud? Of course not. We're not saying that. But we are saying that the Talmud was basically a, a um, legal proceedings. Yes, it has a lot of agadot. It has a lot of ma'asim. Those are peppering, so to speak, the Talmud for us to learn Musar from them, from us to learn, to learn, uh, to learn uh, a, a parable from it, a moral from it, from them. But the rest of the Talmud is legal proceedings. Now, who studies legal proceedings? Take, uh, you know, take our society that we live in. Who needs to study legal proceedings? Lawyers. Lawyers need to study legal proceedings so they could understand the law, the path of the law, and so they could basically decide the law once they become judges. So that is the legal proceeding. Now, does every person in, in, uh, in society learns legal proceedings? Of course not. They don't need to learn it. They should not learn it because they should more learn whatever in their endeavor is in their area of study. As a doctor, I have to learn a lot of research that has been done to arrive at, at, at how we treat a, a, a disease, what kind of medication we, uh, we, and why the medication works or doesn't work, et cetera. Those are scientific medical proceedings, so to speak. Does anybody learn it? No, only the doctors and whoever is in charge of that, of, of, of the health of a person, they need to learn these things because sometimes, sometimes the standard medication may not work, but by knowing other medications that have some interactions, maybe we could use sometimes a medication, what's called off-label. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly in Halakha, the, the, the Gemara, the Talmud are legal proceedings that who need to study them? Lawyers, what are the lawyers? Hachamim, right? The Hachamim that are Jewish lawyers or, or, or lawyers in Jewish law, right? right. And if eventually they become Dayanim and, and, and so on and so forth. They have to learn the Talmud back and forth. But for what reason again? So they could come down and conclude what the Halakha is. So when they are asked to question, what should I do for this situation or that situation? they know what the halakha is. And when there is a situation that is not so clear, they could decide, they could be the posek of that halakha by learning and knowing the Talmud, where sometimes the Talmud, there is a minority opinion that in some cases it's important to apply, especially when it's there, when it, there is a need of the need of the public or when shahat dahak so on and so forth, extraordinary situations that hachamim as lawyers in Jewish law have to decide. And that's what the Talmud is all about. Where Ashkenazim uh, and Yeshivot Ashkenaziot in Europe studied the Talmud more for intellectual exercise, not necessarily Alibadil Khatan, not necessarily to derive what the Halakha is. 
for intellectual and exercise, which is wonderful. Not saying it's, it's wrong, but with intellectual and exercise, you're not gonna come to the conclusion what the halakha is. You're always gonna end up, mm, it could be this way, it could be that way. We have this shita, we have that shita, we have the third shita. Okay, and what is the halakha? Many of them can come up with the halakha. There's only very few that are poskim that are able to come with that, with that halakha because it's for intellectual exercise. And that's why we have the, what's known as the shitat ha-pilpul. Shitat ha-pilpul, what, what if this and what if that? And they come up with a lot of what ifs just for intellectual exercise. And at the end, will not come to Alibadi al-Khata. Where Hachames Farad, they were more interested in Alibadi al-Khata. The second principle is Kohade Hetera Adif which means that uh, the power of leniency is preferable. The power of, of finding a, a, a way that the masses can accept is preferable because uh, you, when you are a posek halakha, you're not a posek halakha for your talmidim in the yeshiva only, where, yeah. you, where, where you hope and you believe that because of their piety, they're gonna go the mahmir way, right? The strict yeah. way. So for them, you could be posek that way. For yourself, you could be posek that way. But when you are a posek halakha, you are a posek halakha for the masses, for the entire community. And that entire community has many colors and degrees of observancy, abilities, uh, understanding levels, so on and so forth. And so when you are posek halakha, you have to find a common denominator for all of them. Right. that they are able to keep. Because as Hachamim say, which means that it is a misvah, it's a commandment to say something that somebody can listen to you, but it's also misvah not to say something that you know they're not going to listen to you. You better not say it. And so when a posek halacha is posek the mahmir way, the strict way, he's leaving behind maybe 90% of the people that are unable to keep up with that halakha because it's too strict for them and they won't be able to keep it. So that's why Hachmes Farad were very, very careful to make sure that, that when there are posek halakha, they posek the lenient way to be a common denominator for all the community. For themselves, Madbi Mahmiri, Alava Shalom, Moravi, my father, who was a hacham in, in, in Aleppo, in, in Lebanon, and in Mexico, he was for himself very, very mahmir, very mahmir for himself. But when it came to his own family, his wife and children, he would tell us, no, don't, I'm mahmir for myself, do what the halakha says this way, and that, that's going to, and then for the people, the same thing. But for himself, he was mahmir. Kola mahmir for themselves. And maybe people should be that way for themselves. But that should not be the, the way of the Pesach Halakha for the masses, because it would leave a lot, a lot far. I'll tell you an example. In that trip uh, of Sephardic heritage of Spain, I was with a very prominent Ashkenazi rabbi. And he was uh, uh, reading a, uh, a Teshuvah by uh, Rabbeinu Asher regarding Sisit, right? Arba'a bekanfot, the, 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 you know, the garment that we wear under. And uh, that Teshuvah, Rabbeinu Asher, had a mahloket with the reef position. Uh, Rabbeinu Asher was demanding, when he was a Rosh Yeshiva in Toledo, was demanding that his Talmidim wear wool, wool, arba'a bekamfod, wool, wool, sisiot, right? Where, where um, the reef had posek before him, of course, uh, that uh, they could wear it a cotton, with wool sisiot, but the cotton garment, not necessarily wool. And uh, the Rosh could not understand why none of his Talmidim and of the community was following his Pesach. They all continued following the Rif's Pesach. Uh, and the Rosh was like, the halakha has to be all wool because they have to be the same thing, the garment and the sisiot. So the Ashkenazi rabbi in the trip could not understand why also there was this description, how could the reef posek this way, uh, Rosh posek? So I explained to him, I said, look, the Rosh really came from Germany. It was a very, very cold land. The winter is very, very cold. Where in Spain is very, very, very hot. 
if you are going to demand from the people to wear woolen garments, it's going to be impossible. They're not going to be able to withstand with such gezera, with such a decree. Rif understood that the environment will not make the people wear woolen garments in a very heat of, of uh, 100 degrees, 110 degrees. And so he found a way to be mekil and find that the garment could be made out of cotton, right? Or even of linen. And so that way, the majority of the people can fulfill the mizvah of Arba'a become fault. Where the strictness of the Rosh, nobody listened to it because the, the, the people could not, could not uh, uh, keep with that because it was just too hot. So they preferred not to wear the Arba'a foot at all. And so uh, that I think is the difference between Hachmei Sefarad and Hachmei Ashkenaz. Where Hachmei Sefarad Koha Dehet Ra'adif, they understood that you have to sometimes take the lenient view because you're going to reach the entire masses where if you take the strict view, you're gonna reach only very few people. Um, actually, Rabbi Sachs, Allah um, Shalom, um, he said something uh, very interesting about the disconnect between the Roshe HaYeshiva, um, specifically in the Ashkenazi world, the Poskim, and, and the community at large, and that there's, there's a real disconnect there. And in, in order for the Poskim to truly um, pass the, the correct halachot, they have to be in touch with what's going on with the people. And he felt like there, there wasn't that connection anymore. Uh, th that is a very correct statement, uh, uh, but that change in history took place in the last uh, over 100, 150 years in the Ashkenazi communities. The Posek Halakha was always the Rab Harashi of that community. Uh, the Rosh Yeshiva was simply a Melamed Tinokot, was known as a Melamed Tinokot. The Rosh Yeshiva had no say in the Pesach Halakha for the Kehillah. The Rosh Yeshiva's position was to teach, and whenever they had a question of halakha, then they would go to the Rav Harashi of that kehillah, uh, either a city or a town or Bet Knesset, and he was the posek halakha. He was the dayan. He was the posek halakha. The Rosh Yeshiva was strictly a melamed. That started changing over 100, 150 years ago. Even in Europe, it began changing that way, where the Rosh Yeshiva took now prominence more than the Rav Rashi. And that is where, if I could use that term, the community went wrong. The Psak of, of, of the Hachamim went wrong because the Rosh Yeshiva, with his erudition, of course, was posek for his Yeshiva, for the, the Talmidim of his Yeshiva. And that's when I began explaining uh, my, my first or second question. When they are posek for the for the Tamil of the issue, of course the Talmidei Yeshiva, they have all your Shamayim, they are learned. They of course they want to do the Mahmir way, the strict way, because you know they want they want to be they want to be Mahmir, right? But the Rosh Yeshiva most of the time was not paying attention to the Kahal because he does not have much connection with the community at large. He only his connection is the Talmidim of his yeshiva, and that's his arba amotshel halacha that he has. Where the Rav Rashi of the community knows what the community knows, what the community can, what the community's challenges, what the, the, the difficulties, and so he is posek halacha in a way that the community is able to withstand and keep it. And that change, as I said, really began over 100, 150 years. Even in, in Europe, it began that, and then definitely continued here in the United States with the great yeshivot and great Roshi yeshiva, where the Rosh yeshiva became the Rav HaPosek, and the Rav Rashi of the Kehillah became uh, uh, a subject of him and needed to ask him a question. And that is, I think, where, where um, the Derech HaPesak went off the, off the Derech of, of historical Pesak Halachai, if I may use that term. Well, beautifully said. Um, one question that I found to be interesting and I wanted to ask you about was uh, the Torah stresses the relationship and obligation between man and God as berit, covenant. Um, what's the difference between the covenant and religion as understood in the more conventional sense? 
Well, uh, I guess we, we, we're going to try to understand semantics here. Covenant, a covenant is basically is an agreement. A berit is an agreement. And in any agreement, you have two sides. There's not only one side, there's two sides. And that, uh, I don't know if you're a lawyer or anybody who's a lawyer, they know that when there is an agreement, a contract, there are two sides and they both are obligated in whatever that agreement and contract says, and they both signed onto it. Now, if one side violates that, right? I think common law says then the other side can violate the agreement. If one side violates, of course, the other side can say, hey, one second, you violated it, you have to pay uh, whatever the damages indemnification and some of those contracts have have certain, if you violate this, then you have to do X, Y, Z, either pay a fine or, or the entire, some contracts tells you if one side violates the contract, then the, the contract is no longer valid. And so it depends on what those contracts say, that's the obligation of both sides. The berit between Akadosh Baruch Hu and Am Israel is likewise, is a berit that, that, uh, that has obligations and responsibilities from both sides. Of course, for Am Israel, but also Akadosh Baruch Hu has certain obligations and responsibilities. And we also have privileges for both sides, right? And so the only difference is that the berit that we have with Akadosh Baruch Hu, it can never be abrogated. It can never be abrogated, right? And so, yes, there are penalties. There are penalties for violating that berit. Uh, whatever they are, the Torah itself mentions or whatever we don't know, uh, but that berit will never be, will never be abrogated. You know, there is a famous joke uh, that uh, the Jewish community after pogroms and, uh, and uh, you know, attacks and this, they, saw, they told HaKadosh Baruch okay, God, you know, we want to return the berit back to you. We, you know, we, we were the chosen people. We thought we would be chosen for uh, glory and, and uh, winning and so, you know, beautiful things, but we have been chosen to be attacked, inquisitions, Holocaust, pogroms. We don't want to be chosen for that. So we want to return that contract and say, no, no longer. So Hashem says, okay, give me back what I, what I gave you. So, okay, the next day trucks, you know, those 18 wheeler trucks, uh, a line of over hundreds of them, if not more, came to Hashem to deliver back what, you know, the covenant. So Hashem said, what, what are all these things? He said, what do you mean? This is your covenant. They said, no, I only gave you two tablets. <laughs> I only gave you two tablets. Give me back the two tablets. What are you giving me back? <laughs> what do you mean? Giving you back the, the Tanakh, the Talmud, the Mefarshim, the Sifre Halacha, Sifre Musar. He said, I only gave you two tablets. You know, that's all what I gave you. So, as a joke, uh, but, but of course, that's a covenant. The covenant is a commitment from both sides. And that covenant from Hashem to us, of course, the Jewish people have gone through difficult times over centuries and millennia. But Hashem's berit with us has not been abrogated. Look at all the nations of the world. All the most powerful empires have come and gone. And all of them wanted to destroy Am Yisrael. They didn't succeed. Every single major empire, nation, kingdom disappeared and we are still alive and well. And we went back to our land and we are, we have established a beautiful country as powerful as, as, as the most powerful countries in the world. That shows that the Berit with Akadosh Baruch Hu has not been abrogated. He's keeping his word and we ought to keep our word. Now, what's this between the term of berit and religion? Uh, it's the same thing. Every single Jew is bound by that berit, is bound. Uh, and a person cannot say, well, I, I was not the one who said in, in uh, Har Sinai Na'asev and Ishma. I didn't say that, so therefore I'm, I'm free. Well, uh, if I can put you a, a, a parallel or an example, not every single American said yay to the constitution that was uh, enacted in 1776, right? Not that, yeah, are we obligated? If we live in this country, we are obligated by, we cannot say I did not uh, agree with the constitution. Well, but that's, so what the previous generation accepts, we have to accept. Whatever we could change, we change. Whatever we cannot change, we cannot change. And so, but the Torah itself tells us what we could change, what we cannot change. Not from the Torah, but from 
Pesach Halacha and so on and so forth. That's what every Hacham of every generation has the ability to adapt the Torah and, and the Vrechachamim to the generation that they live. So we could all live as, as Jews with Yirat Shamayim and Shorei Torah on So um, I, the Berit is a fancy term, uh, is maybe a legalistic term, but the religion, that's, that's what it is. You know, Judaism is not just a religion. It's not just a body of laws. Uh, it's a way of life. It's a way of, it's not an ethnicity. It's not a race. It's a way of life. And that way of life is based on Chochmat HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that he gave uh, even to Adam HaRishon from the beginning and then to Noah, then to Abraham. And he was later on promulgated as the Torah. Right. Um, and I can't speak with a uh, Sephardic Chacham without bringing up the Rambam. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, what happened in Spain uh, before the Inquisitions. The popular opinion among some scholars and contemporary Orthodox historians blame Maimonides' philosophy and rationalistic pursuits for having caused religious laxity and apostasy of the Jews of Spain leading to the Christian conversos. Do you agree with this? Because I've heard others who completely reject this. No, I don't agree with I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Absolutely not. Uh, there, uh, the, the, what happened in the, in the Jewish communities in Spain is multifactorial, multifactorial, as what's happening in the United States Jewish community and what happened in the European Jewish community you know, before the war. Uh, we cannot uh, uh, blame uh, what happened for, because of one book or because of one issue or because of one, of one type of philosophy, not at all. Uh, it's multifactorial. It is multifactorial. And most of that multifactoriality, uh, especially in Spain, is that first of all, there was no central government in Spain. There was no central Jewish government and there was no central uh, you know, uh, secular government in Spain. Spain had different regions and different kingdoms, right? So Leon, the, the kingdom of Leon uh, and Castile when they united, but that was all at the end. There were pogroms in Toledo in the, in the 1300, even uh, over a hundred years before it started. The, uh, and, and, and so in many areas, even during the time of Hasaib and Shiprut later on, there was also attacks amongst the Jewish, uh, against the Jewish communities. And so those attacks uh, against the Jewish community uh, definitely affected how the Jews saw Judaism or saw themselves as Jews. Many of them were forced to be converted, many converted because of tranquility. We know they didn't want to be persecuted. And so to, uh, to ascribe a blame to, to Rambam rationalism is very simplistic, I think, very, very simplistic. And I have to believe that it's because of interest in their own agenda uh, that, they're, that they're ascribing that fault. No, certainly not. If anything, I think Harambam made it more possible for the persecuted Jews to be able to keep Judaism mm. than to give it up, than to give it up. Uh, there's no question that Christian persecution of Jews was rampant even, like I said, starting from the early 1300s uh, and not all, all the way until, the, until the, the expulsion in 1492 and in different regions and in different areas. Uh, and some cities, uh, they had, a, uh, I'm not going to call it a pogrom because that's a Russian term, but they had an attack against the Jews. Uh, and then the Jews, either they fled or they were killed or they converted. And then 10 years later, things got much better. And then another 20 years later was another attack. I mean, we speak about the golden age in Spain on how beautiful we lived, but we had plenty of, of, of attacks against the Jewish community throughout the centuries in Spain, really starting from early 1300 and, uh, and not, not, not till the end. And so all of those things are factors. Also, there could be a, a factor of assimilation there uh, when you have certain degrees of liberties, as we have here in the United States and in the West, uh, Jews are going to assimilate. Unfortunately, and this might sound very controversial, uh, anti-Semitism at times keep, keeps us Jewish. Mm -hmm. When there is no anti-Semitism, we assimilate. We live very freely uh, in a liberal environment and 
we just assimilate because nobody is reminding us that we are Jews. Mm. And that's what happened in Europe prior to the war. That's what's happening here in the United States in the last 50 years. I mean, uh, the Jews in America in the 1950s, uh, the census showed like 6 million Jews. And you ask anybody nowadays, how many Jews are in the United States? They still tell you 6 million. Mm. Now, could it be that in 70 years, the population didn't grow? impossible are we dying at a higher rate than other populate all the other populations are growing significantly except the jewish population are we dying at a higher rate definitely not are we emigrating at a higher rate you know definitely not so what what are we doing we are assimilating unfortunately and more people more jews if i may again make this statement that to some people might appear controversial, but it is the truth. More people, more Jews have assimilated in the United States than Jews killed in the Holocaust. In the United States, by statistical methods, we should be now almost 18 million Jews. If we started 6 million in the 1950s, we should be 18 million now. If we're not 18, 15, if not 15, 12 million, at least we should have doubled our numbers like many other populations. But we have remained the same, if not, if not less. The latest poll, it showed 5.7 million Jews. So we are even minus than what we were in the 1950s. So why? Because we live in a liberal society, everything is open, there is no persecution, there is no anti-Semitism. Well, now there is. <laughs> Uh, more sense as before, and so we assimilate. And I believe that something similar to that occurred in Spain, and many of that assimilation was was um, sped by the forced conversion of um, of Jews. So it was a combination. So to say again, to conclude, to say that the rationalism of Harambam is what caused the uh, you know what happened in the Jews in Spain is a very simplistic and it only serves the interest of the people that said that right and actually the you know the famous disputation of barcelona obviously there was a spanish um, influx of the, the franco-german schools that came in later with haramban and interestingly enough he uses in his disputation against uh, pablo cristiani he uses maimonidean arguments not kabbalistic arguments to defend Judaism, so it goes against this theory because obviously the the if if Maimonidean philosophy leads to Christianity, why is it being used as the argument against it? So that yeah. absolutely that, that that that's very very correct, uh, very correct. In fact, as I said, I think Maimonidean rationalism uh, allowed more Jews to remain as Jews and to be Jews in the society that they lived in than, than the, the anti-Mamunidian uh, argument for that. That's correct. In fact, many of the metaphysical beliefs or many of the metaphysical uh, uh, um, acts and practices that some of those Jews adopted uh, at the later uh, age in, 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 um, in Spain um, have very similar uh, closeness to, to Christian metaphysics. Uh, Christianity in the Middle Ages was, if I may use this term, very heebie-jeebie, you know. Right. It, it wasn't a rationalistic religion at all. It was very, uh, very spiritual, metaphysical. Magical. So on, so on and so forth. I, I remember uh, and th that in the 1970s, there were many Christian sects that they would send you say this statement 10 times and in three days God will, will send you a reward and things like that. That never occurred in Jewish practices. Mm. And yet in the last 10 years, I have been seeing more and more of those in Judaism. Say this uh, paragraph of, of, uh, of uh, Tehillim 10 times and uh, you're gonna see X, Y, Z or sent this message to 12 of your friends <laughs> and in three days, they're gonna come back to you with them. We never had that. We never had that before. Yeah. And so unfortunately, many of the spiritual metaphysical people who are not very knowledgeable uh, in true uh, 
Torah Tanistar, if I can use that word. They're not very, they're simple people who adopt certain things of Torah Tanistar, Torah Hasod, and unfortunately they misuse it. And that definitely may, uh, if not equate them, but may get them very close to the Christological uh, heebie-jeebies of, of the Christian religion. Understood. Um, the last question um, is, uh, does the Sephardic culture of today in any way resemble that of old Sfarad? If it is indeed very different, how so? And how did we get to this point? And finally, what can we do to revive this tradition? Well, uh, is it equal? Nothing is equal. If, uh, if, if you don't change over uh, five, six hundred years uh, in certain things, then uh, something is wrong. You know, we, we have to change. We have to progress. Uh, but when we carry the basic principles, that is, you know, that is what, what, what defines a community. And so I do believe that in certain Sephardic communities, we still carry those principles of, of Hachmeh Sefarad, of Yehudut Sefarad. Uh, now, some of the details might be slightly different, but the principles, the Rikarim, the principles of, of, of the communities of, of, uh, of Yehudet Sefarad and Hachmeh Sefarad, many of the Sephardic communities still carry that. Of course, there have been some changes. Some of them are regional changes. Some of them because we had Hachamim in between that many people revere and respect, and they may have added certain things. Look, uh, the Yahadud that was practiced uh, in the Midbar or even during the time of Melachim and the Nebi'im is definitely different than the Yahadud that was practiced during the time of Bayit Sheni, of, of the Tanaim, of the Emoraim, and, and later on. It's a different Judaism. In what sense? Because Hachamim, they needed to adapt Judaism to what was happening. There were no more Beit HaMikdash, there was no more uh, Korbanot, and so Hachamim, they had to create a Judaism that could be permanent throughout the diaspora. And that's the greatness of our Hachamim. That's why we call them sages. They're Hachamim, they had Chokhmah to see who is a wise person, the one who can see the future, the one who is able to understand what might happen in the future, and how I need to do to maintain and assure the continuity of the Jewish people. And so throughout generations, many hachamim of each generation saw the importance of maybe adding one paragraph, adding one sentence, adding one minhag, all to make sure that the community doesn't get lost and doesn't dissipate and doesn't assimilate. And so, uh, yes, I think the Rikarim, as you know, the Rikar of Yehadud, we still have it the same, believe in one God and the Ten Commandments, 613 misvot, you know, and the Masoret HaHalacha, Masoret HaKabbalah, it's all the same. There's certain differences because again, region, history, and the different Takanot uh, of Hachamim that so that is important to maintain the Jewish people. And so we have a lot of similarities with Hachmeh Sefarad, Yehadut Sefarad, with of course certain changes that are adaptable to the world in which we live in. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, we wanted to give you uh, our blessing also that you have a lot of success um, and uh, you know, you're able to make waves in the, uh, in the bringing together of the Jewish people and the Arab Muslim people. You're doing a great thing. You're doing God's work. So we want to wish you all the best and success. And uh, hopefully one day again, we get to speak with you. Yes, thank you very much. And, and, and to answer the, the last part of your question is, is are we able to, to, to uh, recreate that? Oh, yes. And, 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 and uh, that is exactly what I'm hoping to do. Uh, uh, with utmost uh, modesty and humbleness, uh, if I'm able to be uh, that person who can recreate that in an Arab land, together with our uh, Muslim cousins, uh, working together, uh, uh, strengthening each other and respecting each other's faith and religion, then uh, certainly I think we are at the beginning or the cusp of something great to come. I'll tell you, many of the Arabs uh, that live in that area that have been in touch with me, they wanna learn Hebrew, they wanna learn about Judaism, they wanna see the similarities between the two religions. And when I have discussions with them, they're just, they can't believe how close we are. Yeah, yeah. And some of them told me, I don't know, our parents have told us that Islam and Christianity are very close, that, that Judaism is far away. And we just realized it's exactly the opposite. 
Judaism and Islam are sisters' religions, and I think because of political reasons, they tell me that we we were we were uh, we were distanced. He said, but it's incredible to see how we have very similar beliefs, similar traditions, similar things, and I try to and, and they're flabbergasted. They're really wow. amazingly uh, uh, impressed or want to embrace that, and they want to learn more about it to see. Some of them told me, look. The original religion is Judaism, and then Islam came. And so we know where Islam is based from. And so to understand our own religion, they say we need to learn the mother religion, Judaism, wow. that we understand better ours. And so I do believe we are at that, at that period of history that we might be able to, to, recreate, uh, to recreate that. It's really amazing. I tell them, look, take the word, the word Hajj, you know, the famous, in fact, the, the new Hajiri, uh, Hajiri uh, year just started last week. And this past month was the month of the Hajj. Where does the word Hajj come from? What is the Hajj, right? The Hajj is the pilgrimage sure. of Muslims to Mecca, right? And they go around the Kaaba, they do Hakafot. Now, what, what, it's Hajj. Now, does that word uh, bring something to your mind? Something similar in Judaism? Sure. Hag, Hag, the Hagim, the famous Hagim are the three Shalosh Regalim. What did we do in those yeah. pilgrimage to Yerushalayim? And in Sukkot, what did we do? We did Hakafot around the Mizbeah. That's Hag in Arabic is Hajj. But in Egyptian Arabic, they don't say, they don't pronounce the J, they pronounce the G. So in Egyptian Arabic, it's called Hag. It's the same word yeah. that, that, that has the same meaning. For us, it's pilgrimage to Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. For them, is the pilgrimage to Mecca. Wow. And so when you explain that to them, they're fascinated yeah. to see we are so close to each other. And therefore, we have to support each other. We have to respect each other. We have to learn from each other. And we have to be able to live together in peace and harmony. Amen. Amen.